This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hey everyone, and welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, I was very lucky to be introduced to a chap called Sunil Radian. And Sunil is the CEO and Chief Innovation Officer at a company called Prodo. But beyond that, he's got a really, really cool background from being an innovation leader, both on the agency side and also as a serial entrepreneur. He also happens to be a board member at the Forays. He's a board member of Plus Pool, that really crazy innovative pool that they're looking at building and floating, floating out and basically outside of New York City, really wild stuff. He was the chief innovation officer at the highly respected agency RGA. He was the founder of the brand incubator Finch 15. He was the EVP of product innovation at Vivaki. He was the director of innovation at BBH. And this list just goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> so what I really love about Sunil is that he's basically both a diehard entrepreneur, but he's also vastly experienced with innovation in the corporate world. And I think that's why this week's episode is perfectly named An Entrepreneur's Point of View on Innovation at Startups, Big Business, and Beyond. And with that, we're going to start this week's O Ship, and you'll get a chance to meet Sunil. Welcome to Ships, Neil. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. I, I hope I, my, I wasn't too nauseating the amount of praise I heaped on you in the beginning, but you've done a lot of really cool stuff. No, I, I appreciate that. I, you know, I run on Flattery, really, Freddie. So, uh, <laughs> no, actually, uh, it's, it's funny, though, hearing it, you, you, it sounds like I've had like 87 jobs, but so many of those are concurrent type roles. That uh, I just want to clarify. You're like, it, it, it would be such a good look. He's like, yeah, I get fired every three months. It's yeah, amazing. Exactly. And then I go someplace else. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah no, a, bu- a bunch of those were for, for really quite a few years. So again, yeah. you look, uh, you look, you got, got that young look. But yeah, they, uh, they, you've been, you've been, <laughs> been around doing this for a while. So too, too right. funny. So uh, you know, I, there's so many places we could go with this. Let's start with the basics. Proto, T- tell us a little bit about your current company. Yeah, so it's an innovation and design co- company, and you know we're we're weird, uh, kind of, and I think we we pride That's ourselves weird. on that a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so you know we're as likely to compete with like a BCG or an IDEO as we will with like kind of a brand uh, company, and and really that the general hypothesis is you know innovation is hard. Uh, it takes a lot of disciplines, and right now if you're a company trying to do innovation work and you need outside help, you go. You hire a management consultant, then you hire an implementation consultant, then you hire like an innovation and design firm, uh, then a branding firm, and then an agency to kind of go to market. And it's like, that's a pretty broken model. And although the idea sounds insane, our thought is, well, why can't we try to do about 80% of that in one place, knowing that means you have to have a boatload of disciplines. So, you know, we uh, have a seven founding team, uh, which we always, uh, I would say is a feature, not a bug, uh, because you need all these different disciplines to do this stuff. And so there's no kind of favorite discipline. Uh, and, and that's the thesis behind it is that's how practical, like actual tangible innovation comes out the door. Did, did I want to make sure, did you say you said seven founding teams? Does that mean yeah, you have seven, with seven founders? founders? Yeah, seven, seven founders. Yeah. And then I drew the short All stick, right. so I, I had to be CEO. But, uh, 
But yeah, there, uh, we will definitely be going back to that because yeah. as, as a uh, serial entrepreneur and uh, you know, founder of a couple of things out there, I, uh, I I know how challenging them is. So, um, oh yeah, I, I, and I will tell that. you, I, I have some funny VC stories about that, which is like when we were uh, first raising capital, and we, we we weren't really focused on taking venture money because it's not really our, our business model, but. But that was a theme that came up. Is like that. There would be twenty-five follow-up questions from every VC about it. It's like no, <laughs> it flows like a whole hour every yeah. time. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I, 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 since we're on it, I have to. I have to ask. So, you know, when I've pitched VCs and raised money and things like that, it, you know, they they obviously pick into different parts of the team. So, how were they getting? Do they love this? They think this was the worst idea ever. Like, how were people reacting to this? Yeah, so so we ended up taking capital outside of venture for what it's worth. And I will say yeah. that one of our decisions, we took it from a, a big marketing services holding company called WPP, who's a yeah, minority owner of Proto and, you know, large multi-billion dollar entity. They loved it. I mean, in their mind, they're like, this is this solves the kind of fragmentation that is the challenge in innovation. And, uh, and they like that we're equally analytical as creative. When I was talking to different kind of VC options when we were founding Proto, truly this would be, this this happened on multiple occasions. We would kind of go through our pitch, you know, we won't call Proto or anything, Nuco, this is what we think about Nuco. And everyone's like, kind of, you know, ask some good questions. They love the work they'd seen out of the people involved. And then it kind of toward the end, it would always be, hey, Sunil, could you stay on for a minute? Uh, And then, you know, the uh, people drop. And basically it was like, look, I'm going to just be honest with you. Think of this as advice, which is you definitely don't want that many co-founders. Did they air quote it when they did it? Yeah, yeah, and it's always a you know it's free advice in every VC meeting, and uh, and all of them the same message: it's too messy, it never works out. You know, founders are uh, you know you guys will argue and and everything goes wrong. I mean, basically, it's just plan for the worst case scenario, which you know isn't necessarily bad advice, but but I think being a collection of optimists, it's like hey, it's okay if not everything works out perfectly, uh, yeah. but we still there's no way to to have our hypothesis, which is very Bauhaus, which is it takes all these disciplines at one table. To do this type of work, and then say, "Oh, by the way, some of them are uh, are junior, or have less authority, or you know, uh, in any way subservient to the other ones," because that that just defeats the model, uh, and that's the very thing that we're, we're trying to be an antidote to. I mean, as a as a guy who founded a collective, got, you know, God knows I appreciate uh, this kind of you know approach and thinking. Absolutely, and, and so, yeah. One, and one other question on Proto uh, before I jump into some other stuff. So you, with the this this uh, this number of founders, and then so then how, what's the total headcount? Because I mean, it seems like it's a pretty proper sized organization. Yeah, well, I mean, we're eighteen months old. There, uh, we're around fifty people at the moment. That's awesome. And and we kind of set up this program because you know a lot of these uh, and th- there's no typical type of employee at Proto. You you can understand that. I mean, you know, you have yeah, someone from Kinsey next to someone from Interbrand next to someone. Yeah, from, I think it's awesome. Yeah, uh, you know versus like someone from frog and you'll bring all those people together so by definition you know we, we even though 50 sounds big to me being 18 months into this business the reality it's is it's, it's in breadth more than depth if that makes sense so it isn't like deeply yeah, stacked yeah. teams it's just a lot of a, a lot of very you know we have multiple special talents that are one of a kind uh and they're the only ones with their job title that type of thing very cool so, yeah. so let's let's jump into it. That's a great foundation. I, I could have totally geeked out on your VC stories for another hour, <laughs> but I want to I want to jump into the innovation side of things. So, yeah. uh, it, it, great, you know, kind of top top of the umbrella question. Like, what decides if a company can successfully like transform through innovation? Yeah, I, I wish I knew the answer to that in a sentence, or, and I'd probably, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I will say. 
you know, there is a, there's definitely some themes that, that work. And now let's use an example where it's, cause we work with small companies that are like the disruptors. And then we work with, you know, big kind of the legacy players that are dealing with the disruption, so to speak on the, on the big end of it, when you're that kind of established company, you know, hundred years old, couple decades old, I will say the ability to accept the cultural change as small as that sounds is actually probably the most consistent uh, corollary to success, which is to say that mm. it's a company that isn't going, oh, I have to adjust because the world's changed, but God, I love that old world. Uh, it's like, you know, inevitably, and l- let's take a big company's board. A big company's board will generally have kind of the long tenured people that have kind of been through, been through the, the peak, so to speak, and then the new blood that have been brought on specifically because change is afoot. And when we're in a project where it's only the kind of, Hey, I'm the one board member who's advocating for change. That that's that's the steepest hill to climb because now you have to bring along some, you know, kind of rooted in beliefs that have like, well, we've never done it that way before. You know, generally speaking, there's some open mindset about it because you wouldn't call an outside partner for help around innovation if you thought everything was going great every day. But I will say that that ability to say, I know how things were done. I'm not necessarily on board with exactly what new looks like, but I am open-minded about how we have to do different things. That, as simple as that sounds, that's the primary corollary to what's going to be successful. It is, it is a, a mindset in a lot of ways. And, and the trap where it, it kind of, where the rubber hits the road is, are you willing to measure a new business or a new offering or a new approach by a different metric than your old approach? And it's when you use your old metric to measure the new thing, guess what? The old thing always looks bad because by definition, your business got big measuring it the old way. But if you acknowledge, you know, in disruption, the world change, somehow the value proposition of what we do is different now. So we have to measure it differently. So if you can get to that cultural mindset and then agree, it's going to be a different measuring stick than we had before, because that's what it looks like. Those do tend to be the, what I call the requirements for change, um, where we tend to bat the highest, you know, we have the highest success rate when those two things are in place. Mm. You know, one of the things you pointed out that I thought was, uh, you know, interesting is around, you know, calling out the culture side of it, because I think that people can uh, like rationalize the need for change. They can look at their competition yeah. coming in and disrupting their business. They can say, we need to do this. We need, whether that's a shift in what their product offering is or just how they do business in some way. But then the reality of the rationalization hits the uh, non-rational cultural side that drives a business that has all kinds of factors in it from just people's feelings and, and feels, how they've done things a certain way and or they don't like change or they feel like it's just going to disrupt their job or something like that. And, that, and so, I, I, that's such a good insight, Freddie, because that last, last sentence, the, the last point about it disrupts their job. Humans are humans. And even at a really, a really good organization, you know, it's self-preservation. There is, there, there's always a little bit of like, well, hold on. What's my role as we change? Of course, that's human nature, and and I understand it. So, being able to frame it to say, look, if you if you are a team player, which uh, you know most good companies kind of work in, like you know the be- the best companies, the good, good the premise of good to great is you have a great purpose and, and 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 people who are bought into it. How do you say, look, you you all showed up together to achieve this broader purpose, but you have to be flexible in your mindset about how you get to that purpose because the world changes. And you still believe in the bigger ambition of what you're doing, but you, the how is changed. So if you change the what, no one will come around. If you change the how toward that what, which is what everyone signed up for, you can kind of get a little bit of your your preservation, which is, oh, well, I came here to do this. And, you know, because I came here to do it, it's uh, 
it's something that I'm okay changing how I do it, if that makes sense. Mm. So I want to ask one more question on this, and I'm going to get deep for a minute. I got a big, big, big question I want to jump into. But yeah. because I feel like the the technology side of innovation is a lot easier than the cultural side, in, in my opinion, uh, you know, when you're trying to drive these shifts, like what tricks do you kind of use to to make these shifts happen? Because, it, you know, again, it's so much easier to uh, easier to deal with tech than it is to deal with humans in, in many regards, if you, if you don't yeah, know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I wouldn't call it a trick. I mean, I will say, sure. you know, what one of our founding principles is that, uh, look, if you work at Proto, you're you're probably pretty smart. Like, I mean, the IQ, the IQ is, it kind of speaks for itself when you, when you talk to the team. But the thing that we really try to hire for is people with high EQs. Like that really is our biggest mm-hmm. differentiator because, you know, when you're, go- when you're trying to, when you're, pursuing innovation, when you're pursuing innovation yeah. or transfer, and let's, let's take that legacy example. That, that's the most important thing happening to, for this group of people. And I, I really, the joke was like, I started doing innovation work from my marketing career before and my hair immediately went gray and it went gray because the, the most stressful thing happening for my clients is the very thing that they've kind of hired our, our team or company to do. And in this case, that empathy of like, hey, this person, this is the, for this team of people, this is one of the most important things in their lives. And so having mm-hmm. some empathy around that versus just kind of banging on about best practices in a way that isn't, you know, this is how it's done. You either do it that way or you're going to fail isn't helpful mm-hmm. because every company is actually unique. They all have different strengths. They have different cultural principles. They have different vernacular. And instead of just kind of, you know, saying there's a, a process or a widget that solves this. The reality is we need people that can kind of adjust to a culture to say, let me cut, we're going to go on a journey together. I have empathy for you on this journey because it is hard. All pain is always hard. Even if you know, it's good for you, it's still hard. And, and so I wouldn't call that a trick, but I will say it's what we built the, you know, it's a founding hypothesis here. Super smart. EQ people who can, can, you know, kind of adjust and say, you know, maybe this hasn't been done before and it hasn't been proven, but I see how it's necessary for your company to kind of believe in this and come along on this journey because it serves that higher purpose we talked about of whatever your organization's purpose is. What's so interesting about that particular strategy and, you know, I mean, I've been involved in hiring hundreds of people in my career. Yeah. You, you, that's not on LinkedIn. That's not <laughs> on their resume. You can see their resume and be like, that guy and that person looks amazing. And then you get yeah. on the call and you're like, Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and so there's this like this soft soft skill that you have to try and pick up through that process. I, I will I, I will t- I will share some bad news with you, which is unfortunately it now is on LinkedIn, and it's so insincere, it's painful. Like the amount of people who identify as I'm an empathetic leader, or I care a lot about empathy, and it just it became a like this thing that is so foundational that when you take it seriously, you go, no, you can kind of tell someone who. And to be clear, I don't mean like, oh, they're charismatic or they're highly engaging. And we have a ton of kind of, you know, a mix of weirdos that, that are great, that are high empathy people. But empathy is just, can I see the world through your point of view? That's it. Can I, see, can I put myself in your shoes? That's empathy in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And that is impossible to actually confirm on LinkedIn, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, you, you, you know, even people, it's, it's hard to hire for. I will tell you, like, there's, there's certainly in my career, um, hired people that I really, I thought to be highly empathetic. And then in retrospect, they were highly charismatic, but actually like when things got tough, which is when empathy is its most important, it turns out they were like, Hey, it's this way or not. And I, I'm kind of closing down as a result of being in a tough situation. 
situation. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow, I'm kind of seeing it for what it is. Mm-hmm. How do you know in advance of bringing someone on board? I have no idea. We have a, we have a couple of tricks we use when we interview to figure it out. But ultimately, uh, you just try to get them to meet a lot of people and see if we all agree. That's a, you know, that's an empathetic. I'm going to start watching over this. One of my pet peeves is people that refer to themselves as like gurus and stuff on LinkedIn. Yeah. Like anyone who self-appoints themselves that is a, makes me a little nervous. And I might have to yeah. start watching out for the self-appointed empathetic people. Not quite yeah. as aggrandizing though. So hey, yeah. I do want to point out um, for, for anyone in the audience right now, if you have a question uh, for Sunil or I, about the subject, you want to chime in, just put it in the chat. If we can fit it in, we absolutely will address it. So it's, uh, you know, for those of you that tune in live, Doship, we want you to take advantage of that live experience. And for those of you listening in, hopefully some great, you know, later on, some great incentive to join the show live. So I, I want to dive in onto a, a deep subject uh, here, at least I, I think is, I think is a, a more challenging one. You know, when you talk about innovation, we just spent some time talking about the cultural side of it. Yep. But I think most people, when they think of innovation, more lean on the thought of this, oh, it's a new tech or some new thing mm-hmm. that gets made, right? And and so I would be re- really intrigued to get your take and potentially maybe, I don't want to put you on spot for all of Proto and your partners, but certainly your, your point of view on, you know, when you, as a, a innovation leader, start thinking about new tech that you're going to introduce, mm-hmm. you know, what what are the implications of this potentially like to society, to yeah. uh, uh, you know in, individuals like does it does it hurt does it hurt a bunch of workers does it help a bunch of workers does it have privacy implications I'm sure there's a million different ethical questions that come up around tech and I'd love to know if that's kind of woven into your thought process yeah g- great question and and I don't mind being put on the spot if I did I probably should right. sign it thank you <laughs> oh, uh, sure. especially, one, especially one like yours where I hear your questions <laughs> I, you know, having uh, seen and, and heard many episodes it's uh, I know I get put on the spot but so I use the definition of innovation that that proto uses um, which I guess is one luxury of being our chief innovation officer is the introduction of something that is new and relevant okay like that in a nutshell that's what it is most notably, you'll notice the word technology isn't actually in that definition. Now, technology is a key enabler of that. Let's be clear. It drives all the change we're having to adjust for. It gives us opportunities that maybe didn't exist before. But it isn't about the technology. The technology is hopefully the enabler toward toward introducing, like bringing it out to the real world, something new. That's the easy part. Everyone knows new is an innovation. But it's relevant. And the relevant part, just I want to tie these your two questions together which is what's relevant for company A, even if they compete with company B, should by, dis- by definition be different. And because if they, if they are a purpose-led company, their purpose should be different than their competitor's purpose. There's some higher order that they're pursuing. And so what's relevant for them, you know, their strengths are different, their culture is different, their mission is different. You have to account for that. The role of technology then, and, and this is the thing you know, I, I, uh, I've actually spoken about quite a bit, is technology is neither good nor bad. I think when people and every cocktail party conversation, when, when someone eventually pins me down to figure out I work in innovation, will a- ask me about technologies. Like they immediately jump into it. And then luckily, I can immediately defer them to crypto and talk about that for an hour. But instead, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I will occasionally get the comment about, well, you know, technology is bad. Or technology is good. I'm like, it isn't. It's like technology is an enabler of what we do as humans. And so you have good humans, you have bad humans, you have good plans, you have bad plans. And we just have to acknowledge that if we're going to be the the company that is actually introducing a new technology or a new approach to an existing technology, which is often the case, you know, it's not like we're inventing some new tech and dropping it into a company. It's, 
hey, you've never used this technology before, or you're using it maybe in the in a less relevant way. As we move it, let's be conscious about the impact of that and adding, it's our job to make sure there's an ethical layer there. And that ethical layer isn't just a set of rules. Of course, we have those sets of rules around what we think are the right ethics of, of applying tech. But our goal is to say, if you believe in this purpose, and we try to work with only purpose-led companies, mm-hmm. that this is actually how we have to lay out rules for how you're going to apply this technology. Because you know, if you care about your workers and this technology is actually going to save you costs on workers, then you have to think about that as the implication. And, you know, that that's the point. Does it actually, it can change your workers, but is it just going to just say, oh, we're now going to be fully automated in something? Mm-hmm. Or if we're going to apply machine learning, which comes up a lot, if we're going to apply machine learning, let's make sure we understand the confines within what we're trying to learn versus just kind of hand over the keys of empowerment and assume that it, it will self-guide, self-guide what is good and bad. Like your, your purpose is that ethical lens and different companies have different purposes. So generally, a lot of our work is translating what they're trying to do. And hopefully, you know, we choose we're very choiceful about our companies um, that we take on as clients and then say, now let's figure out what the application is to the technologies we're talking about. Mm. Tim, I think is so cool about this. You know, the, a lot of marketers tune into OShip and I mean, we, I like to believe we appeal to a broader audience uh, across a lot of different industries, but I know we have a lot of people from the marketing world that tune in. And I think marketers, uh, you know, the kind of talk around purpose-led brands has been around uh, you know, for a while, and that's something that you hear a lot of people talking about. Mm-hmm. What has been a theme with some of the other great leaders like you have been able to have on their ship over the last uh, couple of years is you know, really making sure this concept of purpose extends everywhere. It's, it's innovation. It's in, you could be a technology leader. You can be an innovation leader. It could be yep. you know, your operations team. Everyone it should be led by this company's purpose. And, and it's not just a, a branding exercise, like, you know, and I, I think that, and I think that's a really, really cool that that is how you kind of um, come back through this uh, uh, lens. So, yeah, it's, I, I left, okay, we got a question from the audience I'd love to throw in. Uh, so Meg Kinyas, do you enlist ethnograph- ethnographers in your explorations? And if so, when and in what way? Yeah, great, great question. So with ethnographers, of course, so there's no way to do innovation work. Uh, all good innovation work, this is kind of a standard principle in the space is you want to be as customer centric as you can. I say customer because we, have, we do a lot of B2B work, not just B2C work. And by the way, more recently, a lot of government uh, BDG work, which has come up because we, we do, you know, especially in the climate space, governments are huge customers of, of whatever the, the, the climate entities may be. So by definition, we, the only way that you can really get to what are the real audience needs here? And this is where, you know, I think for us, it, the, so the, there's the, a quote, which is so often misattributed or, or, you know, arguably apocryphal about, and, and Steve Jobs made it famous again. He, he said that Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a faster horse. And, and, and there's this idea that, oh, you know, as a visionary, I know what the answer is. And this is a real theme in innovation. If you pick up any business article about the space, it's gen- generally the story is, sadly, white man overcomes all odds as an individual and tells the world the right vision of, you know, whatever the heck it is that, that he brought uh, to life. And yet when we looked into how innovation works uh, over history, and I did like a full, like multi hundred year kind of analysis of like, the, you know, the best innovations in the world and the stories behind them. And two things emerge immediately. First of all, that story is almost always false, which is actually there's always a diverse team a very diverse team, and, and I mean cognitively diverse, okay? Yeah. And, and, and thank God, uh, recently much more kind of, um, you know, et, et, uh, ethnically diverse as well. 
you, all of these different perspectives. And that group of people generally all led at different times along the way of that project. It isn't like one person had all the answers. It is, it's a team of people from different disciplines who all knew when it was time to let the others and lead. And this is the part of innovation that gets left out a lot, which is the fellowship of like, hey, it's my turn to follow. And I understand that. That's actually what makes me a good leader or a good team player is I know when to lead, I know when to follow. But who are you going to follow? Oftentimes, one of the, one of the you know, I- integral parts of this is the person you're making the thing for. Who is the audience that uses this? Who is the person who's buying it or applying it or, or experiencing it in some way? And that is why ethnography is critical. So you have to be able to say, hey, let's not just ask people. Um, because by mm-hmm. the way, that although I, I will say that's a, that's a, you know, I think Henry Ford just was, was, was bad at customer research because <laughs> uh, you mm-hmm. can ask people and people are savvy and they do know and can give you good answers. But then you also watch them. And actually see like, well, how do they experience things uh, really? And then what are our observations of what what it is that they're actually doing, regardless of what they're saying? And of course, there's always going to be a delta in what someone tells you and then kind of what they do. That's true everywhere. Mm-hmm. So just understanding that humans are human, back to that original theme, being able to follow them and get insights from, oh, this is actually how they apply something matters in every project. It isn't a specific use case. It's, uh, you know, you have to have some form of customer insight and ethnography is a great tool for that. Um, one of many, I might add, but, um, but it's an important one. Awesome. Megan, thank you for that question. That was, that was great. Uh, so uh, I'm going to jump back to something you said earlier. Um, so we sure. said, you know, uh, uh, hu- humans being humans for a minute here. So yeah. You know, I was uh, blown away by how many founders you've got. I think that yeah. I've, I've never tried to do anything like that. Is so I had to go back to this. What's it like, and what are the challenges of running a company with with multiple founders, especially when they've all got basically different backgrounds, like you outlined? Yeah, luckily none of them will ever watch this, so I can speak. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Bunch of moms, uh, then. No, I, I, I can't. <laughs> well, look, look, I will say we had the advantage of many of us knew each other before. That that helps a ton. So it isn't That's just, true. you know, uh, we, we, we met on LinkedIn and, and all decided to make a company together. So we kind of know to that point about leadership and followership I brought up, which is a real principle for us of know when it's your turn to follow. What, what's been, I'd say, the, the biggest challenge is when we're disagreeing, of course, that happens on every founding team. Mm-hmm. I will say the hardest part of it, though, is because we disagree on uh, 80% of the time we disagree. Like it isn't a, oh, we see the world eye to eye. We don't. We actually went out of our way to make sure that we have people who don't see the world eye to eye. And so knowing when it's like, "Mm, we should kind of probably follow this person's lead is is the tension that, you know, I I certainly feel a personal responsibility to balance. But really, it's shared by all the founders, which is just making sure that, you know, you know what, this is my opinion. But this person, I, I, they're good at what they do, and I trust them, and let's go their way. I think really, ultimately, that means being able to check your ego. And that's what it is in a nutshell, which is like, it, you have to remember that if we're making a thing together, it's great news when I was wrong, and you were right, and we followed your lead. Like, that isn't about, it's not if I'm right or wrong, it's did we collectively get to right. And so the reason I, I said it was a feature, not a bug, is I have to believe in this group of incredibly smart, nice people we will probably have the right answer somewhere in that group. The challenge is being able to identify when it's the right answer, so to speak, or is this the right approach to it? And the good news is that, you know, and, and I feel like, you know, in any business, it always feels like the stakes are so high and, you know, people's livelihood depend on this. But, you know, at the end of the day, you, you can get a lot of things wrong. I mean, this is why I was, I was happy to, uh, you know, actually come on this, this particular podcast versus others is just the acknowledgement of like, 
you know, you can survive most most errors you make as long as you've learned them, right? It's a it's a chance, and we say a lot. We reserve the right to get smarter. Cool. Yeah. I reserve the right to get smarter. There's, I'm allowed to change my mind. In fact, if I never change my mind about anything, I'm probably doing something wrong, or I let my ego decide what, what's happening. And and I would say that's the the main challenge is to be able to say, let's go with this person uh, or these group of people, you know, out of this leadership team that that see the world this way, and let's try it. And then having really clarity, and this goes back to the same thing I told you, we tell clients having clarity on what success looks like. Did we measure success right? So are we winning or are we losing based on this decision that we made? Is that going well? But is it honestly going well? Or is it just, I really need it to go well, so I'm going to you know, uh, use my marketing hat and just make sure it sounds like things are going great when it's not. And, and I'd say that's the challenge is just trying to, being able to have the, check your ego and then have the faith that the other people really want you to succeed as much as they want themselves yeah. to succeed. And then being able to give each other feedback. And that's the hardest part. I will say in a nutshell, and, and that's at our company, we really value feedback. It's the hardest part about working here is you get feedback from everybody. I mean, you, if you're a designer, you will get feedback from a strategist or a technologist or whomever else about design. It doesn't matter because the whole belief is all those disciplines together work. And the hardest part is being able to just with compassion and with empathy, tell someone when it isn't going well and know that, hey, I'm still on board with what you're doing and I, I believe in it, but we just have to look at this and it isn't going as well as we thought it would and let's change direction. And I'd like to think on a good day, I get, I get that and listen to it from, from, you know, those, those individuals as well. I also get the impression that you and your, your team coworkers and co-founders have a good sense of humor because I've been ruthlessly trolling you in the LinkedIn chat about asking you to rank your co-founders. Yeah. So yeah. hats off to you, all the proto people tuning in uh, for Chris Neal's <laughs> interview today. And uh, yeah. I encourage you to tease him as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can tease me as I, as I do. I've le- see, this is, this is the gift of working together. I've learned to tune them out so that it's not, you won't even notice it as you listen to this. <laughs> I love it. I actually, I think, you know, I, I loved, I think everything you said about approaching how you work with, with your co-founders and partners, I think is, is spot on. And I do think, you know, whether it's intentional or not, having a good, having a good sense of humor with your, with your, your, your co-founders, your partners, and your employees, I think is, is, you know, it's not just empathy, but I think humor is such a great way, uh, first off to, you know, bond with people, but also when you have disagreements, it's a great way to quickly blow off some steam. Uh, so I think being able to last stuff off is, is everything, which I guess is the spirit of O'Ship, right? I mean, you got to be able that to is last the spirit of O'Ship. Actually, and Freddie, yeah. I will, um, you know, I, I know you don't run on flattery, but I would like to say this, like now having, having dived into the content and come along with the show, there is a theme and that theme is, and, and I, and it's, it's the, it's the solution to the problem I said before about ego, which is the idea that you can take your job and what you're doing or your purpose in life very seriously without taking yourself seriously, th- those are distinct. And I think what I've noticed about your guests, at least the ones that I, I enjoyed their episodes the most, and it's a theme across the board uh, of many of your guests, is they don't take themselves too seriously. I don't think you show up to a place that is going to ask you about you know, things you've done horribly wrong in your career and, and think like, oh, I, I want to make sure I'm presenting some form of image about myself. And, and that really is like, and humor is a part of that. It's funny that yeah. it didn't go right. Like after enough time has gone by, <laughs> it might not be funny in that moment. Um, I might be crying in that moment, but later it's a funny story. You know, it's, it's funny is, so a lot of the early guests on ship were friends of mine that I've known for a long time. And I like people that don't take themselves too seriously. And I, I think, I think super successful people, if you're really, really confident, you, you got, you can laugh at yourself because yeah. it's the people who actually 
aren't that confident. I mean, this has knocked anyone out there. If you can't laugh at yourself, you probably got a little bit of insecurity, you know, there. And then I got to meet new people like you who I'm like, yeah, this guy's on my wavelength. We could be friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I've made yeah. a lot of new friends through the, through the process. And, you know, it's, it's fun. It's really fun to be around people that have had some great successes in their life. Not so fun to be around people that have had some great success and just can't, you know, take it down a notch every once in a while, you know? <laughs> you know, I was in, I was in Cannes a few weeks ago and I met a lot of founders there. And, yeah. you know, we're going to make a real mixed bag of both of these camps there for the record. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And, can, and can, can is actually amazing because in such a backdrop, you either have the people that take themselves incredibly seriously or the yeah. people who clearly don't. And uh, I was in, in Cannes. Actually, Todd Kaplan, one of your previous guests, uh, talked about Yeah, he's great. Ultimately, you know, it's in the south of France. So there's no way that you can just, you know, kind of not pretend that regardless of how things are going, you've decided that you're going to go, you're going to fly to the French Riviera and probably drink some rosé and maybe go on a boat and talk about some things. And you either need to be open about it or uh, kind of constantly roll your eyes and make it satire, but yet you still showed up. And yet that, that is the dynamic of, of people there. Yeah. But I met so many founders there and a hundred percent of them. Now we're in a, we're in an economic downturn. I am a founder and I'm a previous founder. Like founding things is, you know, effing hard. And yet 100% of the founders I met, you know, arguably in the, we're at the end of the world, uh, uh, many living in a, in, a, in, a, in a democracy that is struggling at the moment, will all show up and say, things are great. They're, I never heard one person tell me they, they're dealing with a single challenge as, as a founder uh, there. And I just thought, like, how, how could this possibly be true? And yet that is the message that I think a lot of, a lot of people try to present. And don't get me wrong, like, I understand the need to just give people confidence in something. But, but I think not acknowledging its problems if anything, would give me a lack of confidence of like, oh, I'm not hearing the whole story from this person. I should be worried as an employee or as an investor or something sure. if I if I don't see that things go wrong. <laughs> see the truth come out. So on yeah. that note, yeah. the perfect segue, if I ever heard anyone, yeah. uh, I'm going to have to ask you an oh shit question at this point. Please. So are there any you know, stories, whether it's you know, business ventures, meetings, uh, pitches, you know, anything you can tell me about something that maybe has gone a little off the rails in your career that you'd be willing to, uh, to share with us? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of those. So I, I started in advertising, which is like the most high drama industry you could possibly have. But justified or not, I might add. Just, just, when I say that, I don't mean, you know, the stakes are so high. I just mean it is a culture of extreme drama and people really, because they live and breathe this. Like that isn't a you know, that isn't a dig on the culture. I actually love the creative culture and advertising, yeah. but, but the stakes always seem high. And so that, that's one version of story versus kind of like the horribly, the kind of horrible business meeting. And I'll, and I'll share, uh, I'll share one ad disaster. Cause those are always, those are always fun, yeah. which is when, uh, I worked at a company called BBH, an amazing company that, uh, you know, is based out of, based out of England. And you know, that the work that, uh, in my era there, that the, the company was most famous for at that time was around Google Chrome, the launch of Google Chrome. And like, you know, Google historically never really used advertising, even though they made all their money from it and they started doing advertising and BBH was kind of doing uh, a lot of different, it's digital things and TV things, but it was like, Oh, a TV ad is being made for Google, which at that time was kind of, you know, big deal. incredible. I remember when these came out. A big deal. Yeah. And, and it has to be and Google, you know, Google has this approach, which, which I loved. And, and back then there really was like some of the most creative, talented people in the world doing this. Like, I learned, it was like one of the most amazing uh, learning experiences in my life is working with these people. But there was this ad, uh, you know, which ended up being famous and winning all these awards. But because Google actually brought their purpose, they actually brought a real mission to like the ads weren't 
use Google Chrome. It is a good web browser. The ads were, um, by the way, we support the LGBTQ community. Or, uh, hey, we actually understand that the difficulty of parenting. Like, I mean, there's some real themes in this stuff that, you know, back then uh, were, were pretty rare. They were striking when you saw them. And, and, you know, these were like 90 second epic things. Basically, the, you know, in the, I want to say it was the final 24 hours, I might have like the window wrong. Honestly, it could be shorter even. But we figure out that as the, the uh, TV ad is, it needs to be shipped because it is actually going to go live in like an epic, like I can't remember, it's like the Oscars or the Emmys or something. It's like, you know, premiering on. No one's gotten the rights of any of the 35 celebrities in this particular uh, video. And so, it, which is impossible. Like you, it, we were basically opening up the world's richest company at that time to every lawsuit on earth. And this, you know, our ad agency is just completely kind of, you know, uh, so we've kind of skipped this step somewhere along the way because of the speed in which we're doing it. I didn't want to know how that happened, but go ahead. Yeah, you know, and here's the thing. It's like, it's in every story, someone will say it's this person's fault. And it's like, the reality is like, actually what that team pulled off is like what makes BBH magical. They did the impossible. It was beautiful and they did it. And one step got skipped, but turns out it was a high cost step along the way. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, this use of relationships with all these people, and these are huge celebrities, which is, by the way, this spot, if you guys want to Google it, it's called It Gets Better. Uh, and it's basically people talking about, it's tied to the It Gets Better, uh, uh, I, I don't want to just call it a campaign, but it's a whole movement to kind of support the L- LGBTQ kids who are had a high suicide rate, which is like, hey, this gets better. Just don't don't worry. As you grow up, this will get better and it gets easier. And that's the message. And it's amazing. And we've you know, partnered with this. Ama- it's called It Gets Better, the, the, the organization. And it turns out, though, that even though we send a lot of text messages and urgent agent calls and everything, that uh, there's one in- individual celebrity who's like, I'm not signing this and basically is now using that to negotiate to get more money. And there's no negotiation. It's like, we're done. It's ready to go. I just we need to click email on a link to download a file. Please, 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 please just sign this. And lo and behold, you know, that didn't happen. And earlier, like that week or that month or something, Lady Gaga had come by the Google offices and said, we should do some stuff together. And so the Google client at the time uh, was like, let me ask her if she would film something. And she literally gets her phone and films it backstage. And so if you look at that TV spot today, it is all this like kind of high, high def, uh, you know, kind of amazing messaging. And then Lady Gaga just kind of filming herself, uh, filling in the, the, what would have been, you know, eight seconds of dead space in the middle of this commercial. Done immediately, no edit. She's about to go out, then goes on to perform and that, that thing got shipped. And it That's was definitely awesome. that moment of like, we're about to air something and it's just going to have like eight seconds of black, uh, of black screen. And, uh, <laughs> and we'll use that time to update our LinkedIn's because we're all getting yeah, you just filled it with a little original life and Lady Gaga content. So that worked out. Okay. Yeah, it worked, it worked out great in the end. But, but that was that was one of the high drama moments. Um, I will tell you one that didn't that that has less of a happy ending that um, uh, is just an embarrassing story, if that if that's OK. On the other end, of the non advertising, <laughs> it's so, a safe uh, space. You do your thing. So this is a large automotive company, a large American automotive company. And they had brought us in to do some, at that time, it was some innovation work about uh, directly tied to video games. And video games have become this huge entertainment platform. But when I was doing video game stuff, it was big as a business, but it wasn't, it didn't have a cultural respect at the level of like, you know, kind of film and-, and Bigger than the movie business. Bigger than the movie business. Yeah, and honestly, that. like- yeah. And it's obvious to anyone who grew up playing video games, but it was very hard for, let's say, a pre-video game generation to acknowledge Mm -hmm. because they thought of it as, that's a bunch of like teenage boys doing it. And I don't care about that. I'm trying to sell it. I'm a 44-year-old video gaming nerd to this day, so I get it. (laughs) And by the way, that puts you in the average age of a video game player, not anything else. But there's this perception back then. This is uh, probably 15 years ago. 
And, uh, and so we're pitching this thing. And so as a result, we have to bring out, you know, cause for a lot of these clients, you have to show them what you mean. Like they've never, you know, I've never seen an Xbox or how does it work? Or I, you know, what, what do you mean? There's like online communities playing together. And so you have to go and demo it. So we have to bring out this hardware and we've done all this stuff. And this particular uh, marketing leader who had a very big title at this automotive company uh, during the meeting, she had said, I'm, I'm trying to not reveal too much because I don't want this story to be horrible, but it turns out that she had at that time, she was with like kind of her two marketing left and right hand people. And one of them, like she sent out to go get a coffee and then, you know, uh, during it. So then it was just her and then the other right hand. And then that person left and it was just us and her. We're still present. We're doing the whole dog and pony. Of, These are video games and this is what we're imagining. And this is the role of automotive. And that person comes back with a newspaper and hands her the newspaper and she starts reading it. So to be clear, she can't even see the thing we're demoing. She's got a full newspaper open. <laughs> and, and, you know, you just keep talking because what else can you do? Uh, you know, that the person's little, it's fine. We'll let it go. And then she starts laughing. And we're like, oh, what's 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 funny? Yeah, I'll use this as a segue to re-engage you here. It's like, what's what's funny in the in the Wall Street Journal of all places? And she's like, oh, I'm 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 in the Wall Street Journal today. That's why I'm. And she's and she's laughing at her own quotes in it. I'm like, oh, that's kind of a funny. Oh, that's great. Let's talk about that. Uh, and then anyway, she she's like, uh, she starts. You know, she tells us about the whole story. She spends ten minutes telling us about the Wall Street Journal interview. Kind of reads it out loud to us. To be clear, I don't mean telling us about the story. I mean we, we read the article together, the interview, and then she leaves. And says, as she's leaving, she's like, keep going to me and my partner. Keep going. To be clear, the only two people left in the room are me and my partner who are there, who've flown to the <laughs> And they closed the door. And then we kind of sat in silence because I think we were both shocked. And then he turns to me and he goes, did she just ha- tell us to fucking present to ourselves? And I was like, I think so. I think that's, that's it. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in a pitch. And I've been in some weird pitches. Some bad ones. Yeah. So clearly not, not a love connection. <laughs> and then we waited. Did your partner buy the picture? Yeah. But what ended up happening is, you know, we waited thinking she'll come back. And then about half an hour later, one of those two kind of right hands came back. Like, Oh, you're still here. We're like, yeah, we left. We thought maybe she's come back. Oh no, she left. She's gone. Like she's left the office building. I was like, okay, well, I guess we'll fly home now. Thank you. Uh, that's, yeah, so well, that's actually one of the best and weirdest <laughs> chip stories. And it was so actually I'm tears. I, I don't know if that's tears from just empathy because of just some of the things <laughs> right, I've been yeah. through in my career. But oh yeah. my god, that's good stuff. It was bad. I it's hope, just, there's a guy I do a lot. I've done a lot of pitching with over the years. Who I'm gonna have yeah. to make sure he reads this because that was that was that was comedy gold. So thank it you. Was, for it's, that. it's horrible. And honestly, like it's one of those things where my tears were sad as a result. I was like, this <laughs> is like prep for two months for this meeting, and then later or now tears of laughter because I'm like, wow, those were the hard days of being a founder of just like. <laughs> Um, I love that. I love that they read that she read the entire Wall Street Journal article. You first. Oh, of course. Is that true? Yeah. So, so, so I have one man. That was good. Sorry, I'm still reeling from that. So I've, I've got one. I had so many questions I wanted to ask you. This is great. We got to, we got to do this again sometime. Uh, so I'm actually working on some new shows where I want to get three people to join and have like oh, pick a subject, talk about. We got ready to get back. You get you back on the ship. Cool. So there's one thing you've done or have the long list that I just super geeked out on and I wanted to ask more about, which is the the plus pool project in in New yes. York. So can you for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, can you describe what it is and kind of tell us where where, where it's at today? Because I think this yeah. is a really cool innovation. I love plus pool. So plus pool started. Uh, and this is it's like a dream innovation story in some ways, uh, that I now get to be a part of, which is I saw it on Kickstarter. I don't know, forever ago. And the pitch is it is a water water filtering uh, plus shaped pool 
floating in the East River. And it's like, hey, we'll kickstart this. And so lo and behold, it's wildly successful and everyone, you know, kind of chips in, myself included. And you know what? It, it raised enough money to actually get attention from the city. And it's like, wait, what is this idea? So to be clear, this is a pool that you would access, like you literally swim in the East River and the filtration technologies in this plus shape, which is a key part of the design, filters the water so that you're swimming in filtered water. But then also the it's filtering as it as it sits in the pool. So the water leaving the pool is, is, is kind of filtered out for pollutants and whatnot. And so as you can imagine, New York City being a place where water is inaccessible to most people. In fact, our parks and, and even swimming is inaccessible, which uh, doesn't sound like a big problem to the average person. But make no mistake, when your public spaces are built for are not built appropriately and only the rich have access to learn to swim, uh, you know, access water. Uh, it, it changes everything from your view of climate to, you know, your ability to uh, enter social circles. So uh, that's the premise behind it. I now sit on the board of Plus Pool. Um, we've so recently, cool. we've gotten the city's approval. So uh, the next step is a prototype, a prototype that will be open to the public because we've done all sorts of prototyping and tests to even get to this point, uh, including the water, like daily water tracking and evaluation of water health and just understanding like when is the river swimmable and when is it not because water health changes. It's a river, right? So ultimately, you will see something called Plus Beach. Plus Beach will have sand on it. Okay, It will be unfiltered in this case because the learnings are about how the public accesses this place. So uh, it's, it's in the Two Bridges community. So kind of think like Lower East Side. That, that's an image of it that's on the screen there, uh, a rendering of it, just to be clear. Uh, that's Plus Pool. And then Plus Beach will be open next summer. Uh, and actually, we're working with some partners on, um, on funding for it now. But we have like some key city approvals for Plus Beach, which is critical. So you'll see that roll out next summer in New York, and you'll be able to uh, go and swim in the East River. Like, what, what else could you ask for? Uh, so I'm pretty so excited. Cool. I love it. So I do have one. Well, we're going to do one last question. Uh, just came in from the audience. Uh, so I'm going to pop it up on the screen here. Uh, so Mihir asks, how do you manage clients that engage, disengage when they feel like Proto's directions are aligned or divergent from their agendas? Yeah, great, great question. So what's interesting is our clients are, you know, so the, the, the small companies, uh, you know, like we work with a company called Everscouts, which is an ed tech platform that like teaches kids things like empathy and self-awareness. Getting alignment there is incredibly easy because, you know, it's founder led. It's a small company that's built on a mission that's now scaling and they're ready to go. So when we're you rarely get into alignment issues with a, with a client like that. Alignment issues tend to be more on the huge organizations. And the reason is not because they're not aligned with us. It's mostly they're not aligned with themselves. And so that, that's the biggest difference is inevitably we're aligned with some parts of that org. And now we have to find a way to make sure we can help them get to alignment. In fact, you'd be amazed at how often big companies hire outside partners like consultancies or design firms to help them get alignment. Hey, help us figure out what it is that we agree on and what we don't agree on. So really, it's less about kind of reversing what it is that they think, because there isn't a they. It's a collection of very different parties, mm -hmm. all with different responsibilities in a big org, whether it's a CPG or a financial services company or a healthcare company. And you help them say, what is what are those principles we believe in? And as I said, actually, the, the broader purpose is almost always the best tool we, we relate mm -hmm. to. But the second one is what they're strong at. Every company has different strengths. So can we all agree these are our strengths? Great. Honestly, 80% of the time, you, most people can agree on these are our strengths. So now we know what we're trying to do at a broader level, and we know what our strengths are. Now we're just trying to get alignment around the plan to leverage it to do this new thing. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it devils in the details, but but it kind of gets past the we're philosophically against one another. It's more mm -hmm. on the what, but we're disagreeing on the how. And now I see your way of looking at the how differently. 
Yeah, you know, going back to something you said earlier in the chat, where you talked about uh, obviously a company's purpose, and I feel like when you find clients that have a clear purpose, so that you know the work you're going to do. First off, the work you're going to do is better when you know that they understand that clearly, and yep. probably more importantly, I think a lot of people have a stated purpose, but they don't walk their talk. So when you see people that walk their talk and their purpose is clear, then you probably can even avoid a lot of these issues right up right up front um, because yep. it gives you a good chance to to align. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Sunil, I just want to thank you again for coming on. I had a really, really good time today. I, I hope you had a good time because I yeah, enjoyed yeah. myself, and I hope everyone that watched had a great time, and everyone that's listening, whether you're tuning in after the show or you know, watching us live, uh, just thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, we really appreciate you supporting the show. It's something, something we do just just to share great content with all of you, and and, and, and we get so many amazing people like Sunil that are able to – give us some of their time and, and share their thoughts. So thank you. Thank you again for those who are listening and watching. And thank you again to Sunil. Sunil, how should people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah. So on Twitter, I'm just Sunil, S-A-N-E-E-L. And then uh, I would actually recommend uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter, you can find Proto, our company, which is We Are Proto. On Twitter, it's We Are underscore Proto. On LinkedIn, it's just We Are Proto. So uh, yeah, any follows or any, you can see our work. Um, we do a lot of design stuff. It's not just... Uh, uh, kind of like long word descriptions of what we do. It's actually like, hopefully it'll be uh, compelling and interesting and you can experience what we actually do for them. Right. Thank, thank you so much. And and then again, for those of you who tuned in, please support the show. The best thing you can do to do that is, you know, follow follow me on LinkedIn, follow us on, uh, you know, any of our social profiles, whether it's YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, a million places for us to connect with us under a ship show and tune in. We got great content that comes probably a solid 40 out of 52 weeks a year. Uh, Thanks again, everyone. And I'll see you next week on O-Ship. The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie, we'll see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O-Ship Show.